1: Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host, Kelly Beaton, and in this episode, we take a peek behind the curtain of reality TV. Candid Camera is the oldest reality show, and it began on the radio in 1947. A few years later, in the early 90s, I was working at MTV. And back then, the reality formats The Real World and later on Road Rules were massive hits around the world. But reality TV as we've come to know it today only really kicked off with Big Brother, which first aired in the Netherlands in 1997. I had a half Dutch baby in 1997. Not connected, at least I don't think they were. The Intercept was a late 90s Russian reality TV show that involved a member of the public stealing a car and trying not to get caught by the police for 35 minutes. If they succeeded, they won the car. Where I live in Kentish Town, if we had a local version of that show, there'd be loads of kids winning mopeds and iPhones. Just saying. Apparently, Mars One plans to send humans to Mars in 2023 and will choose the Voyagers via a reality TV show. Sounds like a bit of a long shot to me.
0: I'm all good, I couldn't be happier.
1: That's my guest today, comedian and presenter Matt Richardson, who at a very tender age became co-host of ITV's The Extra Factor alongside Caroline Flack. I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but as I'm a massive fan of Iceland, the country, not the shop, and I also do love kittens, I'm going in again. Iceland's most successful reality TV show was called Keeping Up with the Kartashians or Kartashians, I think that's how I should say it, which was a live stream of four little tiny adoptable kittens living in a weeny weeny house. Oh.
0: oh my God! What a nightmare living round! What a nightmare it is living in North London.
1: Heating <laughs> a Grade Two listed property <laughs> is an absolute disaster. Matt started stand up in two thousand and nine at just eighteen years old and knocked it out of the park in every comedy competition going while still in his teens, He's now a regular at all the major comedy clubs in the UK, a regular face on television and a popular voice on radio. His podcast, When No One's Watching, unearths the dirty secrets of its celebrity guests and is co-hosted by Matt Willis of Busted Fame. Matt and I talked about careers advice, worst ever gigs and heckles, fame, success, failure, imposter syndrome, worry, writing, performing, Billy Connolly, lovers, haters, parents, autism, dancing on ice and saying no. But we started when Matt asked me how it is for my children having a mum who's a comedian.
0: Do your children find it like quite embarrassing that you're a comedian. Now? Yeah,
1: they find it really embarrassing that I'm a comedian. Cuz you became a
0: comedian as they were old enough to kind of understand that.
1: Yeah, well we you and I have approached it from opposite ends cuz you did yeah. your first gig when you were
0: 18.
1: 18. I did yeah. my first gig when I was 45.
0: Isn't it quite nice though that it's a job that you can do that cuz you're, you know, doing very well as well and kind of everything's going well but it didn't matter that you didn't start young.
1: Yeah, I think the weird thing about it is that you end up um it's sort of like, I've, there's different pressures. So on the one hand, I don't have to worry about, I've really got to earn money from comedy because this is it, and I don't want to work in a shoe shop forever, so I've got to make it work. Yeah. I've kind of got other things I can do and that I have done and that I still do. <laughs> so that's a lack of pressure. But it's so weird, the number of times I've sort of said to people on the circuit, you know, I got into it a bit late, and people, when they don't realise quite how... Old I am, will say, and me too. I did my first gig at thirty-two, and I'm thinking, oh. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I, I can beat that.
0: Well, it's weird because when I started, um, I started out with like it was like sort of me, Angela Barnes, Romesh Ranganathan, and Rob Beckett, and we we're all at very never different. Never heard of them. Never. I mean, look, we. I did. I my first Edinburgh four-hander was me, Ellie Taylor, Angela and Romesh.
1: Wow you've we all c- done quite well though. We've all done yeah. right,
0: but I, I am the least successful of the group I would argue and um but what I'd say is we couldn't sell it like we really struggled to sell tickets We when we sold like 20 tickets we were like this is the greatest thing ever whereas now we could probably do the O2 just because yeah, of Romesh. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah I think you're doing yourself down a little bit there. I no mean, but you, still you know. And did you have um so you started really young. Yes. And you got into it how?
0: Um, it was my dream job. Yeah. So I was obsessed with stand up as a teenager. And I, when I was at school, when I was doing my A levels, I had a teacher who did my, I was doing a politics A level. And I was at parents' evening, and, my mom, and he went, What do you want to do when you leave school? And I went, Oh, I don't really know. And my mum went, That's a lie. You know exactly what you want to do. Tell him. And I went, I think I'd quite like to be a stand up comedian. And he went, <laughs> Why shouldn't you be? Because I didn't go to, I think a lot of it is, and as I've learned when you do stand up, you know, privately educated people. Get told you can do anything you like. Yeah. Whereas you don't get told that necessarily if you don't get, take that path, which I didn't. Yeah. Um, and he went, why can't? Why shouldn't you go and do it? Find a way to do it and do it, and then. Six and this was late,
1: a state school that it you went
0: were. to. Yeah, normal it, state school. It wasn't
1: a normal state school. Yeah, yeah, a normal. Although yeah. not that normal if they're actually encouraging you to do that. So. No, he was amazing, yeah. and um, yeah. and
0: then I uh, and then I ended up I ended up doing my first gig six months later. when I was I went to university. I went to Oxford Brooks and yeah. I didn't live there because I lived nearby.
1: Yeah.
0: And the, and I was hated it. But there was a little comedy night I saw an advert for and I thought, oh, I'm just going to email them asking if I could do five minutes. And
1: what was the little comedy night? It wasn't like the Glee?
0: No, no, it just wasn't checking. like straight into the Glee Club. <laughs> no, it was, um, it was like in the Student Union at Oxford Brooks And, um, and then you'd
1: never done any because I did. A, were you pre-everybody doing a course to become a stand up or was that a thing when you were starting the, So
0: courses, I didn't know they existed when I started. Otherwise, I probably would have done one. But they weren't anywhere I grew up or anything. So I just kind of went, oh, I'll email this woman. And she went, yeah, come and do a gig in two weeks.
1: So how did you do it?
0: Um, I just wrote some bits. It was mostly about the university. So yeah. it was all like about, you know, that kind of like chip on their shoulder that people that go to Oxford Brooks have because they don't go to Oxford yeah. and all those sort of things. So in-jokes for a It was crash. very in-jokey, yeah. yeah. And it yeah. went amazingly. Yeah, Like there was a joke about one of the campuses, which was ugly, about, you know, what it looked like. It was all very niche. Um, And then I remember going to do my second gig, which is at like some bar in Oxford. And it was an absolute disaster because nobody else there went to Brooks or cared. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I need to sort of expand my horizons a little bit here. So
1: you were doing stuff that was good for your audience, but might not have been able to travel. Yeah, look, and I think
0: whenever I get asked if I'm good at corporates now, that's what I say. I'm like, look, I wrote for Oxford Brooks, I can write for a company. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Even though I can't.
0: But yeah, so I did. But that was my world, I suppose. And then I kind of, yeah, my second gig back was pretty disastrous. Because I
1: heard it the other way around. My first gig was an absolute disaster. I did one of those. Oh, yeah, cool. I did um, Logan Murray's Stand Up and Deliver and um, all through the course I was like one of the all right ones at it because I'd done so much corporate speaking and I like knew how to kind of command a room and I sort of understood the theory of jokes but then when I did it it was like a sort of recital it was really shit (laughs) I'd learned it I was like here's like my sort of little monologue that I'd learned for the school was it like
0: you were playing a comedian yeah it was
1: it was it was kind of and I was way too polished and slick and all the things you want to be as a Corporate keynoter that you don't particularly want to be as a stand up. So I was diabolical, and I think to everybody's horror, no one thought it was me quite as bad as I was. And I could sort of see it on my mates, you know, those things, it's always just everyone's mates yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. And I could see my mates and everyone else, is going, oh, God, that's fucking awkward. <laughs> and I thought, and also, because I'd, cause I'd sort of worked in comedy for so many years, I knew how shit it was. I wasn't under any illusion of course. that this was vaguely all right. Because that <laughs> is
0: the thing when you start, you don't know how good or bad gigs are, really, yeah, do you? Because yeah. I've looked back, I remember doing a gig. Like my fourth gig in or something my mum came to um, and it was at the Laughing Horse New Act of the Year and she filmed it and at the time I was like this is one of the greatest comedy performances ever and about a year ago I found the file on my computer of it and it's appalling like it's really like, what's
1: appalling about but it's it? it's just
0: what I think like this is a big laugh for people kind of go <laughs> <laughs> but when you are new you're just so thrilled to that get you get a up. tiny little laugh that yeah. it doesn't matter Yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas the fact you worked in comedy <laughs> the problem is you probably could look at it um, and go, I wouldn't book this person on a show I was working. Definitely,
1: I, was I definitely have that. And I always, so everything, I always look at the sort of level I want to be at. I think we all know the gap between what we're doing and what people are doing, who we want to be like. Yeah, yeah, yeah of There's course. always the next person, and I'm aware... Having watched people progress through the industry from you know from the other side of the camera, that they there's always a thing they didn't get that really is galling for them. They're like, yeah, but I never got this thing that I could have got, and I'm yeah, not yeah, that yeah. person. So you, compared to most of us, would be seeing like a really successful comic, yeah, but you're yeah. going, oh, compared to oh, Angela my God. Barnes yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly, you know? yeah. So but there's always that next level. But you, when you really do know, So you're not just kidding yourself, you know, people are like, you know, and we'll talk about imposter syndrome, because I know your show's um, imposter. Yeah. But it isn't just a kind of like, oh, I don't feel confident. But really, I'm great. Yeah. It's no, really. Sometimes I'm not, and I'm, yeah. I I can see that. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's
0: weird, isn't it? As well, and even like even now that you're doing well and you're on television and stuff like, and and the same as when I started doing it, you, it kind of goes well. But I still have like absolute shockers, like. What's
1: what's your most recent shocker? You don't have to say where it was.
0: Um, My most recent shocker, I'll tell you my most recent shocker. Um, On December 2019, it was, I guess, the last time we were all properly gigging. Yeah. um, I started, a fight broke out during my set because a man was so upset with what I was saying. (laughs) Um, And the police were called. What
1: were you saying? Um,
0: Well, not what I was saying, but, like, I, I handled a drunk group probably a bit too... A bit too aggressively. I stand by it because they were being very aggressive to me. <laughs>
1: a bit defensive Yeah, still.
0: And, and I kind of... I, 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 I said to a bloke um, that he was like this, this... So it was a Christmas party, basically. And in a room of 70 people, they were 40 of them, this one company. That's which, hard. Which is already hard because, like, the power dynamic there is, I'm not in charge, it's yeah. what they want. Yeah, And And the, the guy, this guy was kind of like having a go at me as soon as I stood on stage I was comparing and as soon as I stepped on stage he was like well you're a wanker and all this and I was like look I'm not even starting the gig until you all sit down and shut up and I just stood there in silence until they did and you they wouldn't you quite school teacher yeah? Because, because I kind of thought at this point I've been gigging for 12 years yeah. and I'm kind of like I'm just here to do my job yeah. like, I'm not here to like try and pander to you I really want to do a good job for you but I'm not going to try and fight against the impossible so <laughs> This guy was still yelling things. And every time he yelled something, I would, like, say something rude back to him because he was being rude to me. And then the, who, what, who transpired to be the managing director of this company yelled something. And I implied that his wife was probably at home with another man and much happier <laughs> at that exact moment because he was such a foul human being. And and he tried to get on the stage and, oh, like, beat he? me up. And a, and a bouncer sort of tried to calm him down. And as the bouncer was calming him down, he turned around and he hit the bouncer. And you know Was this
1: in, like, a normal a normal comedy club? Yeah, this yeah. is Just the Tonic yeah. in Birmingham. Just the Tonic.
0: And, um, uh, and, as it, and, and then what happened was just all hell broke loose, like a saloon bar fight. Like, people in the company were trying to pull him off. He was hitting people who worked for oh him. Oh, my God. And at the end... Um, and, and the gig didn't happen in the end because the police were called. He was taken in charge for GBH uh, against this bouncer or ABH or whatever. But the, um, the, the, the worst bit was <laughs> it all got cancelled. And... Uh, a woman walked past me Um, at the end I was kind of stood there as they were all leaving like with the venue manager and stuff kind of talking about what what a mad thing had happened and she went I hope you're happy you've ruined everyone's night by causing this and I was like oh I think this I think this might be the last time I ever do this because this is miserable even though I kind of spoke to her and I was like he like I was kind of going back to them with exactly what they were saying to yeah. me. They're being really, really horrible. Like saying things that I hadn't even started the gig yet. Yeah. And um, that was probably my last worst gig, Rowan. I, I think this might not be for me anymore.
1: Did you? Uh, did you still get paid? I'm assuming we still so. got paid.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, my favourite thing though, so uh, Daryl, who run, runs Just yeah. the Tonic, was like, "Oh, we well, have a great story, won't you? Like And I was like, yeah, that's fair enough, Daryl, I will have a great story. (laughs) And and he called me the next day, and the man who started the fight by punching them, because all of the company's drinks got smashed, he called up and asked for a refund on all the drinks that got smashed during the fight that he started. I'd love
1: to know what the business is, bloody hell. And did you, so when you do that kind of thing, those things, much as they are a good anecdote, there is something incredibly soul-destroying about gigs not going well anyway. And so you've travelled up, you live near me in North London, you'd gone up to Birmingham for the night... It, it's nearly Christmas you're thinking this will be nice yeah absolutely MCing's normally not the riskiest place to be right you totally. and I both love emceeing yeah, yeah yeah and you just don't see it coming do you no and,
0: and I think the thing is it's it's really soul destroying and it's that point of going look where I am I do lots of telly and things but I don't tour big venues I like if I'm on tour I play to 60 to 150 people. 150 if I'm lucky, but sometimes less than 60. So like I'm not at a point where I'm like, right, I can leave the circuit behind and go on tour and not worry about it. I'm very much at a point where I go, okay, I need to still do the circuit. And when you've been around 12 years, you're like, I can't believe I'm still doing gigs where people are fighting. Like yeah. I should have gra- I should have, you know, graduated out of this and you just go Oh, God, maybe I just need to do something else.
1: But it could happen anywhere, couldn't it? I was at one of the first ones back. We're recording this, I should say, uh, just when restrictions are still lifting. So we've all been back gigging for about a week now. And last week, so it was my third gig back. It was my first gig back emceeing, and it was in a lovely pub garden, a hundred audience, socially distanced. Yeah, Ramesh's brother was running it, so he lovely. Runs, good gigs, runs yeah. great gigs. Understands comedy, and there was, and it was a really lovely atmosphere. I was a bit nervous. I couldn't emcee still. Both the acts were a bit like, oh, you know, not sure if it's going to go well. Anyway, went really, really well, had a lovely time, did my MC. Marcus Brigstock was the second of the two Fantastic. acts, couldn't ask for a better act for that, so he got on, he started doing material about stuff that had happened that day with Dominic Cummings, Martin Bashir, so totally topical in the case of Dominic Cummings, stuff that was two hours ago, and a woman started shouting, he was like, what's the problem, She, kept, I couldn't hear because I was at the yeah. back, but there was some hullabaloo going on at this table, and she must have said, why don't you do something current? <laughs> so, <laughs> so he said, it's two fucking hours ago. You know how? Do you want me to start doing things that are going to happen tomorrow? And she was like, well, yeah, apart from that, he went, well, Martin Bashir's two days old. How current would you like it? Anyway, instead of backing down, she just doubled down. Did she? On Fair her, play to on her. her, for her like she not. was full. Like, And then she was like, well, I just don't like you. Um, and then he stopped. I've never seen... Do it. He said, he just literally said, Look, I don't normally do this. He said, I'm just going to stop the gig for a minute, like you can. I'm just going to stop the gig and I'm just going to say that what you're doing is completely ruining the night for all these people who are having a really lovely time. And it's really selfish, like trying out ringtones on a crowded train. It's a little thing, but it's totally fucked yeah, up yeah, everything yeah. for everybody else. Oh my God. And then the rest of the audience like, Cheer. He said, Everyone else seems to be liking it. They were cheering. And then she just started smoking to sort of fuck everything up another way you haven't got into this i know you you worked at next and you yeah, did some yeah, other did you had stuff. some other heady bits of your career but basically you've been a professional comedian so you got the extra factor when you were how 22
0: old? so 22. and i started gigging prof- like just doing comedy is my job since i was 20
1: so that is 10 years pretty much straight out of the gate yeah, and yeah, you're yeah, into yeah. being a comic so that's what you know it's, ev- it's everything it's
0: my whole life yeah yeah
1: and how, so you wrote the show Imposter, which would have been on tour last year had the pandemic yeah, yeah, not yeah. hit you. So, what made, what, what, where is your relationship with um, imposterdom? So, Syndrome? that show,
0: I mean, really lazy. I was like, well, not lazy necessarily, but I had a very complicated. Uh, relationship with a previous agent about Edinburgh basically and they were like you have to go and I really didn't want to I don't feel that you should go and do Edinburgh every year it's not the way you've I've you've done it a few worked.
1: times how many times have you twice. done it? twice
0: um, once I, d- I did a proper big one in 2017 where um, you know I went up with Uh, My agents at the time, who are famously like spending lots of money there, and probably lost nine grand and was in a huge room that was hard to sell and all that kind of stuff. And then I was like, Well, if I'm going to go with them, I said, I'm going to do it my own way and I'm going to go and do the Tron, I'm going to do it small, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to spend nine grand Mm -hmm. because I didn't get nine grand's worth of work from the Edinburgh. Mm -hmm.
1: And people listening may not know unless they're comics. How easy it is to lose nine grand. People might be thinking, "What kind of moron are you?" But so many people lose money in Edinburgh, right? Nine grand.
0: They were like, "Great news! You've you've only only lost nine nine grand." I could have I think the worst case scenario would have been like twenty two. Yeah, it's
1: good to put that parameter out there for people listening because the podcast is about work as much much as. And I know
0: people who've gone up there and like done an okay show and lost fifteen thousand pounds, so it wasn't too bad. And I'd luckily done a few bits that paid for it just before. Um, but it was um, it was one of those where I wanted to do it my own way. And, and, there, and then in the end, I ended up leaving that agent and moving. Re- this is really boring industry things. But I had to do an Edinburgh show. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to look at all my material. What kind of links it? And it's basically all about how, in every situation in life, I feel like I'm not really... I feel like I'm not meant to be alive. Like, I feel like I don't deal with life in an amazing way. And it was like, I feel like an imposter in relationships and everything. So I just threw together, like... I'd say half new and a few old bit and called it Imposter because I thought it was quite a catchy like one word title which I quite like.
1: And what is it then, so knowing you a bit as I do from the circuit and knowing how you come across on stage, as with most of us, that isn't what you would think. So you, you're very um, easy to get on with, you're very sort of confident-seeming. Yeah, yeah. But there's obviously something going on. I saw you when, um, when lockdown started to lift and you tweeted saying, you know, oh, hello, social anxiety, <laughs> oh nice to see you, old friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you wouldn't come across as somebody like that. So what's the difference between what you show and what you feel? Um, then? I
0: think... Look, the thing is, I think I I I'm a real worrier. So even though like I really am, I'm very social and I'm quite confident. And like even on stage, I'm super confident. Like, and it's that
1: real. So you seem confident. I,
0: you know, it depends. Sometimes it is, and yeah. sometimes it isn't. So I think in life it is, and I like meeting people and all that. But leading up to going to do something like for example like about this podcast today I had a stress dream that you were going to make me do a gig in your garden as the mud sank in like which isn't something that happened but like I had a dream about coming here and like you go well there's a gig in the garden on this like slope and oh yeah and and I went to the there toilet
1: is actually but we'll do it in a minute I went, I went we and
0: I went to the toilet and, and, and your house was haunted and I got locked in the toilet by this ghost that didn't like me being there and like that so even though like I was really looking forward to seeing you and doing it like there's always like a worry and it's I mean, it's exhausting,
1: but... So is that... So that worrying and that sort of... Has that got worse as you've done this kind of job? Because in a way, you weren't... It sounds patronising to say you weren't fully formed, but you look back at being 20, now you're 30, Mm. and it feels quite... You realise it's quite young, right? 20-year-olds are still only a bit more than children, in a way. Absolutely. So absolutely. So you're evolving as a person, doing something that's really very much in front of people and that makes even quite stable people feel quite unstable. I,
0: I can't believe I did it so young. So I yeah. look back at doing like, especially when I started, I I was doing like proper weekend gigs, like jungle. I was doing jonglers at 19. Wow. Which are... And and were back then really hard. Yeah. And, I, and but at the time, but you know they go. How did you do, do it? These? I just did it. I just went. Yeah, I'll go and do that. And I'll did find. you
1: have that? Did you ever think, God, I'm? But somebody said to me that when you're starting out as a comic, if you're always doing gigs a level, but if you're looking at gigs a level beyond you and going, I could be doing that gig, you're probably yeah, yeah. at the right point.
0: Absolutely. And
1: is that? Did you? Because I still feel nervous about getting booked for the big spots at the big clubs. It, it, I I feel. I always sort of slightly underplay my hand and think, no, no, I'm just really comfortable opening or middle or MC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get very nervous about headlining or anyone billing me as a big anything. Yeah, yeah, Do you think there was something about the kind of folly of youth that made you think think, I can just do it?
0: Also, I think, because because I kind of had this thing where like, when I hit 22 and did The Extra Factor, everything went mental. So I didn't really have time to think about it because all of a sudden I was like doing this big show and people were booking me to headline and everyone was like, right, you're going on tour. And I was like, okay, cool, let's just do it. And because I didn't have... Because it was so busy, I was like, "Yep, yeah, fine, not a problem." Whereas now, I, I mean, I stress about everything, and I worry about being good enough, and even like doing big, big clubs and things. Like, I, I still get nervous about it, and especially if I've not done it for like I've not done a gig for ages. So that's a, more of a thing, but. Yeah, when I was younger, people would go, oh, do you want to go and do this thing, this TV show? I'd be like, yep, yeah, fine, whatever. Whereas now I'm like, oh, will I, will I come across well? Will it be good for yeah. me? like All those things that I just didn't even think about. I was like, yeah, I'll go and do it. Why not?
1: I wonder if people do get less confident. Because I was thinking at the beginning, and you did um, say you think you're funny. Yeah. Uh, sorry if there are people listening. This is quite technical comedy stuff at the moment. But we're going to talk about autism in a second. Broad wow. appeal. But when you think about the stuff you know, the competitions you enter and the way in which you get known. So in the beginning it's competitions and then it's Edinburgh and that's the kind of f- yeah. few steps you have to take as a new comic. And I look back at stuff I did, you know, even though it was only sort of six years ago when I was starting out and I think I had the confidence to do all those competitions and I definitely thought I should be in them and, and now I feel, yeah. if anything, a bit less confident. But I think it's because yeah. you start to know what you don't know.
0: Absolutely. And I think, look, when we all start gigging, I remember doing gigs and they're going, them going well. I had no idea why. And the same, when a gig went badly, I didn't know why it had gone yeah, that's badly. that's the real ask. Whereas now you're, you... I'm, I'm much more in control of my comedy, you know, to not give it, because I can't think of a name for what, that thing. You know, I know what I'm doing on stage, I know craft and things like that. So you're, because you're aware of it, you know what can go wrong, which is, I think, why you're confident Wayne. I'm terrible for doing gigs coming off and being like, that was terrible.
1: Even when it wasn't. Even
0: if it, like, and I'll be annoyed if something went a bit wrong that, I, that I'm in control of. Yeah. If a gig goes... Absolutely tits up, and it's—it it was yeah, totally yeah. out of my hands. Yeah. I'm very chilled about it, but yeah. I get really—I—I I think as well is as I've become, as it's become my job, like for a long time. I've got a lot of respect for the professionalism of comedy. And if I feel like I've done something that might have been better, I feel like I've not been professional enough. And you
1: might have let the night down or the promoter. Yeah, like
0: like one of the things I absolutely hate is when people go on and do 20 minutes of new material at a weekend club where everyone's paid for a lot of tickets. Because I think that's really unprofessional. Whereas I'm totally, when I do gigs, all I want is for everyone to go, that was a... Br- I had a great time. That was worth every penny I spent on it.
1: Does that make you, though, less... Um, I, I know, I've heard you say that you not struggle with writing, but it's not the thing you find easiest no, to do. No, I do. Comedy. I find it
0: really... I find I write stand-up much slower than everything else I do. I'm like, the
1: same, yeah. I find that's the hardest bit for me, is the writing, and that's maybe why we both like emceeing as well, because yeah. you do get new shit from emceeing, yeah, yeah, don't yeah. you? Like I, I I always have these ideas, like all of us, you know, tonnes of notes on my iPhone, and then something that I jotted down six months ago that never turned into material and then something will happen in the room and somewhere deep in the recesses of my my brain and it comes out and then I'm like oh that's the funny bit of that yeah 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 so I and and you could argue or we're like Ross Noble we can write on our feet but actually it just for me it's sheer incompetence you know what it is is I think I think
0: what I've always said is when you're on stage your brain works slightly quicker than in real life I think like and that extra 10% speed or that extra gear you can go into on stage is where inspiration is for me so I'm very much like I have to go on stage and do new material nights and like read them out and go I know there's something funny in it (laughs) I remember there was a routine I had for ages and I used to go and do a regular new material gig with the same audience every week and I go look guys I know this isn't good yet but I need to just keep saying it and then one day something's going to come out and it will work but you just need to give me this two minutes to just work through it and And they were so lovely they did and
1: has it turned into yeah
0: now it's a bit but it was just really... And it was only because at this gig the audience knew me because I used to do it so much that so I was like, please, can you give me this luxury? Yeah,
1: which you can't really do uh, at the comedy but, store. Because I know that you know, I know
0: lots it. of people can sit and like Lee Mack I read in an interview sits and writes 9 to 5 yeah. and like can write and write and write and Matt
1: Ford writes for um, 12 hours a day I think it is for the 7 days before his political party podcast wow he just doesn't drink writes for 12 hours a day I think it's or 8 hours a day yeah um, and just writes and writes and writes having spent the week just to, to prepare for his, you know, his wow. live podcast and it's amazing but that's what he does and I think in a way I think well I don't deserve to be getting what some of the people in the industry are getting because I don't do that
0: yeah but there's also this thing I think and this is a problem in the tech industry that I think is. A problem in um comedy and it's um it's like this suffering for your art and working oh my god I don't take a day off I write for 12 hours a day and we all feel bad that we're not working hard enough whereas actually for me to do well in comedy I need to have a life yeah like I've not really written any stand-up this year because I haven't particularly had a life yeah and 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 I I find that when I take some time away from stand-up that's when inspiration hits and it works differently for everyone some people that can write and, and I've got a couple of friends who are comics who write all the time, like sitting right all day on it. And I had a conversation with one of them. And I won't name them because so it's not fair to kind of say that I'll their technique them. is wrong. <laughs> um, but I was like, how much from that session where you're writing for five hours a day yeah. actually ends up in the final set or in the final show? And it was a minuter. Like amount. a joke. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think, but it's that thing of going, I feel like I need to be doing more work.
1: But do you to think, justify,
0: and also because it's a job that doesn't feel like a job. I know,
1: so you always feel a bit like. But don't you think, when, when you think, what you said about going to, you know, doing a Saturday or a Friday night gig and thinking, I won't do new material, I've got a being a crowd pleaser, which I know is ultimately we're clowns who yeah, are meant yeah, to yeah. please the crowd, obviously, we're not meant not to. But when you've got a really high standard and maybe a worry that you're not good enough, do you, I sometimes think I don't dare try as much as some other comics do 100%. because I'm determined never to have that gig yeah. where people go, "Well, you had me for five minutes and then you lost me for the other 30 I,
0: I, I have to have the best gig I can possibly have. Yeah. Uh, even in, I'm terrible for going to new material yeah. nights and doing twenty minutes of old. Yeah. Because I need them to. I need to do well. And it's this weird thing. And it, and you know what? Like I've got loads of mates who are great at going, I'm just going to do badly for a few yeah. months. Especially people who are big enough to go and do like work in progress shows. And stuff. Don't you
1: think that's quite important though? I, I'm. It's, I'm, it's I, really important. I think it is. And I'm, re- I'm also... I think that short term, and a lot of this kind of podcast has ended up with people being about kind of short term, long term. Because in the short term, of course, great. That you can always feel good. You can always <laughs> give people what <laughs> yeah. you want. But if we're actually trying to... When you look at the people that we really admire in the industry and you think, how are they doing so well... They often are the people who are willing to just bloody try stuff and get uncomfortable and not hide behind the. I know. This is the bit I love. And I mean, even changing like openers. I, I'm really bad. I've got a couple of openers that always work, I and use, I hate changing them.
0: I use this. I probably had the same opener for. I mean, we're we're talking like six years. Yeah. It, club gigs and it, touring gigs are slightly different, but like yeah. I I I still use like in clubs. I've got it's a real mishmash, but like. I do sometimes use stuff that's like eight years old and I'm not precious about that I'm not all about it has to be because I'm just like they're here the
1: audience like it especially
0: if it's like a big club if you're doing like a glee or a stand they've paid 20 quid a ticket they deserve the best night possible so you do
1: what works
0: but then if I go and do say the guinea pig club or old rope that's what they're there for so I accept that if I do new material if I do old material sorry I'm cheating them out of the night out they want Yeah. so I have to go somewhere where it's sort of overtly new material but
1: even then it's Easy to bail, isn't it? Like I like find, especially so the longer bits. If I have bits where I'm like, I kind of need to. This needs to be two or three minutes. If it's a new gag or two, or I can get through it in about thirty seconds, I'm like, yeah, I don't mind yeah, if that yeah, doesn't absolutely. work. But when there's one where I know this needs to become a bigger bit, and you just watch, and people who are really good at improv are always saying to me, "We'll just follow the funny." Like, oh. it's the worse it gets, the more stick with it. Yeah, Whereas yeah, I'm yeah. like, the worse this is getting, the more I'm about to give you something old. I,
0: I am terrible for going on, say, like notebook stage. And reading and going, I've got like ten minutes of new bits to try here, and then doing like the first two, and then going, I I don't even have the balls to do the yeah. rest of it because I'm so I think it's so terrible in the cold light of standing on stage.
1: But some people, I'm reading Billy Connolly's um, book Tall Tales and We Whatever it's called. I'll put the link in the show notes, and it's basically him having written down now that he stopped doing stand up, it's him having written down some of his amazing like the Wilder Beast routine and yeah. some of his best routines, and reading them, you absolutely can hear Billy Connolly doing them. But reading them, it's not like they're... They, I mean, they are brilliant. I mean, he's one of the most brilliant comics that ever lived, in my opinion. And thank God he still is alive. But when you read them, you're like... But actually, as a piece of writing, that's not amazing. No. His insight and his performance, and he is amazing. yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, then I think, well, if we're always going to have to do these kind of crafted bits that work is there a sort of ceiling on where you can get as a comic maybe we, maybe we need to be willing to fail uh, a lot uh, more and also
0: I, I mean I, I really believe in Gary Delaney once said there are two types of comics there's performers who are masquerading as writers and writers who are masquerading as performers mm. and I'm very much in the performer masquerading yeah. as a writer camp. Yeah. and sometimes when I'm doing a bit and I go oh maybe this isn't very well written I'm really worried about this and I've only just, I mean, the last couple of years before the pandemic, or the last year or so, I'm like, maybe I can make this funny by, I used to really look down on, you know, you'd hang out with other comedians being like, oh, well, the writing, that's terrible. And I'm like, if I can get a laugh by pulling a face or doing a silly voice yeah. now, I'm like, I couldn't give a shit. Yeah. I'm going to do that because that's my strength, actually.
1: Are you happy to, so you'll clown about and really inhabit it? and If I can, out. yeah.
0: And I think, especially if I'm like, if I get quite comfortable with a routine. So even on, when I was doing like, like the last tour, like there was a couple of routines that I'd not done for years and I'd brought them back. And when I did them for the first time, like, they were okay. And because I performed them more, and I yeah. kind of really tapped into that. And you'd got better along the way. I'd gotten better. And also, I think, it, it wasn't about the words, actually. And because, really, like, a load of my stuff, it isn't about the words. It's about, like, what you do with them. And it's never been, I'm not a, like... It's not like it's all excellent one-liners, you know. It is, it's is—it's all about people liking you and, you know, buying into you as a char- you know, in quotation marks, a character on stage. And, and do you
1: think that had... So you as a character, so getting to do The Extra Factor when you were only 22. Yeah. Massive show. So you replaced Olly Murs. I did, And yeah. worked with Caroline Flack. Yeah. And that whole thing, do you think that came too early for you?
0: Um, yes and no. I think... It's one of those things that I remember having a meeting with an agent at the time, just afterwards, and they are like, you shouldn't have done it. And I was like, but you'd have been an idiot to say no when it was like...
1: Also really helpful to tell you that when you yeah, have done Yeah, they were it. like,
0: oh, you know, maybe it wasn't the right thing. And I was like, but it was really good. And actually, like, it opened up loads of things for me, like, I really enjoy. <laughs> I'm one of the few people that do and do, like, I don't mind corporate work. Like, mm. I, I really like it and I kind of do it. Uh, and I've kind of got it sus, and it opened up that world for yeah. me.
1: and that is I, a good world that I also a, I drink richly in yeah, yeah, that yeah. cup, like you. I yeah. really and
0: I, I like it, and yeah. I think if you like, like a lot of people will think it's soul destroying. Was actually, I don't mind it at all. Yeah, therefore, it opened up that, and
1: because and, of the profile, so people wanted you because they knew yeah, you from absolutely. the telly. Yeah, and also yeah.
0: like cons- like sort of that was eight years ago, and I've sort of been consistently on television since. And I think the right thing. I think without that, I think. I, I think I'm at a point now where something needs to come along in the next couple of years that's the right thing for me that will then sort of push me to the next level. But without that, I wouldn't have been able to kind of go, well, no, that's not the right thing. And I tried loads of different things that haven't quite fitted me, which no, one, lots of people don't get that luxury of doing loads of different shows and things like that. So And is
1: it, so being in that, as you know, I used to work in reality TV, so yeah. I did a lot of reality TV and obviously, you know, incredible sort of tragedy, what happened to Caroline yeah. Flack. And in a way... I guess you, having come so close to that world and still being in it, but not at the point where anyone can literally take your life away from you by bullying you, trolling you—absolutely—it's—it's—and—and and did that? Did you get a sense of that working so close to a reality show? Was yeah? There any, did you did you get a sense of the sort of cynical side of well, those shows? I did, and
0: also it was this thing of like I was 22, I was still living at home with my parents. I was kind of like a gigging comic, like yeah. I was doing the clubs, and it was kind of going well, and then all of a sudden. Um, you know I, I sort of Went into that show And it was mad Like it was And it was When X Factor They were still getting 10 million viewers The spin off was getting You know 2 million And it was um, And it was this kind of Big circus It was absolutely insane Um, And all of a sudden The show starts And I'm getting like 8,000 tweets a night About mm-hmm. this show About what people Think about me and it was horrible. Like a lot and it's of the time, li-
1: is it the extra factors live, so it goes that right up like, well, to Well, yeah. the
0: first half of it is pre-recorded, for, like judge. Yeah. You know the auditions yeah. and things, and then it's and then alive. it's a live
1: response. But also,
0: it's just it was this kind of thing of I really struggled with it to begin with, and then I spoke to my dad about it, and he was like, "It's these, it's people at home having a go at someone twenty years younger than them yeah. for doing something yeah. they couldn't do." Yeah, um, and now I mean I couldn't. Oh, you know, I love I, your dad for that. Yeah, he was yeah. really good actually. Yeah. And um and it was and it was one of those where you're like, "Oh, this is actually awful." And I think as a man, it's much easier cuz the thing they didn't like about me, they were like, "You're not funny, yeah. you're not funny." But they weren't going for you're your not appearance. funny. Whereas with Caroline, it's appearance, it's everything. Yeah. And I think um, you know, if if a woman is on a panel show and people don't like her, they will tweet about having her raped or something. Yeah. Absolutely horrendous. Yeah. Whereas as a man, I mean, you're not impervious to those insults, but people don't think to use them on you, so yeah. it doesn't hit as deep, I don't think.
1: But it must at 22, though. That is, I mean, that's younger than one of my kids is now, and I, the thought that one of my kids would go through that and have thousands of people hating on them—how did your parents, you know, how they, did, they, 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 were they, were they really... protective of you?
0: Yeah, they were, and like, I mean, so my dad wouldn't look at anything, and and even now, like, if I do things, like when I did dancing on ice a few months ago. Um, I was just like look just don't bother going on Twitter because that's kind of the biggest thing I've been on for a while I was like don't even bother looking but my mum can't help herself she sits there and looks through it and she's like and what, they used to call me they'd be like you had three bad ones and 80 good ones tonight about this show and I'm like I don't want an I don't look anymore I don't care I was like you know I'm they're watching me doing my dream job I couldn't give a shit what they think actually and is that
1: your mum trying to protect you from is is she almost taking the bullet for you so you don't have to no I
0: think what my mum and dad very much and I've I've seen them this weekend they're very much like you know uh, we think you should be bigger so they're tr- I think they're looking at it being like, what's the public mood on Matt? Like, right. it, like are people enjoying him or is this like, is he just not clicking with people? I think as it's gone on, and, you know, eight years later, they're like, so when I did Dancing on Ice, I got a like, really lovely response, even though I was only in it for a week. <laughs> um, but it was sort of overwhelmingly nice. And they're like, see, people do like you. Like, you're doing the right thing. You're d-. And I think it's for them, because it's such a, an alien job, they're like, has he picked the right thing for his life? And if people like me, then they're going. Well, he has picked the right. So
1: thing. it's a way of affirming their son's life choice. And yeah, is it, I think um, so. And in terms of the um, your family, your mum's got Romany Gypsy blood. Is that right?
0: Yes. Yeah. So I um, my mum is um, at one of the well, my grandmother was a Lee, like as in Gypsy Rose Lee. Yeah. Was, um oh, We're brilliant. related to her in East London.
1: Ah. Yeah. So um, lots of lavender handed out.
0: Well, I mean, so we I did a show in Edinburgh when I was doing a show a few years ago. This guy came. And he was very eccentrically dressed. He came up. I came up after the show. I was like, "Oh, I really enjoyed that." And he went, um, "He went. I'm friends with your nan's family, the Lees. I know your. I know your uncle. I know all these people." And I was like, "Oh, amazing!" And he went, "So tell me, what's the power you've inherited?"
1: Really. And I was like, "What
0: do you mean?" He goes, "Well, obviously, because like my great aunt was a palm reader and all this kind of stuff." And he went, "You must have a power. What's your power?" And then he went, "I've got it. The way you hold an audience. That's the magic you've got <laughs> from the family." <laughs>
1: That was before the Just the Tonic Birmingham gig. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which, uh, yeah. So it's kind of this really. I don't know. I mean, I don't know bits about it, but like we used to go and visit my great aunts. And um, you go to a house, and she had a caravan in a garden where uh, a retired Thai trapeze artist lived when they were in the circus <laughs> together, because she did palm reading and um, tarot cards and all that.
1: So really, you being a comedian is quite conventional in the scheme of what's Pretty going on for Pretty much, yeah, you yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. The... And I think um, you know, I, I always just think I can't wait until I get famous enough to do Who Do You Think You Are, because I think I'd have a yeah. really good episode. Yeah,
1: no, that would, da- and then your mum and dad would be vindicated because everyone would love you and you. Absolutely, roots. and
0: also, it's what's tricky with my mum and dad as well is I think with any parent you they want to they want to kind of you know quantify success in their world yeah so when i was doing the extra factor my dad could go my son hosts the extra Factor. Yeah. everyone Very knows relatable. what that is whereas now when it's like oh what does your son do oh he's a comedian oh is he on telling things you're like yeah what's he on and you're like have you seen celebability on yeah. itv2 well he goes <laughs> on that sometimes
1: <laughs> it's hard to even say that one isn't it
0: yeah it's slightly different you know it's. When you tell people you do it, and they're like, have. The first question is always, have you been on live at the yeah, Apollo? Yeah, isn't yeah, yeah, I know. And it, and you know, you want to go, well, no, I haven't, but I have been on some other things that are okay.
1: Or just start going, yes, I have. Have you not seen my episode? Well, that's the thing, is I think, think these the, days. The lying, I yeah, think, yeah, is yeah, yeah. important thing. I
0: guess your one? Your first one was QI, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that? it was it your was. first TV. Yeah, game. it was. And everyone knows QI, so it's a. How and you know, it was I'm a like good
1: it. one for the parents. My parents who exactly. definitely will be listening to this because they uh, always support the podcast. But they, um, yeah, and it's a really good one for them. It's a nice one. And middle-class parents are like, oh, we love QI. Everyone
0: knows QI. Yeah. Whereas I think I've done lots of things that a lot of people haven't seen.
1: But then a lot of people have. And I guess that's the thing, yeah. isn't it? You've got that point where you're more likely to be recognised somewhere than I would be. So. Yeah, it's, it's,
0: it, but it's, it's that weird thing of I've been... And also, just because I've been around for so long now... I kind of live in this world of um, people go... Uh,
1: Don't I know you from somewhere?
0: I, I'm sort of vaguely... I've Do they think some... they know
1: you? Because that's the other thing that happens, people actually just think they actually know you. They, they're like, that, I can't place you, you're someone I tell you what happened
0: the other day, though. So I went out for uh, some drinks with Rosie Jones, who yeah. is a friend of mine. Yeah. And we went out, and this woman went, oh, my God, you're you're a comedian. And Rosie went, we're both comedians. The woman went, I'd only recognise you. And a man <laughs> at another table went, don't worry mate I know who you are and it was and then Rosie made did, made did a vote to see who knew who who was more famous uh, which I didn't enjoy um, but it was that like like that guy obviously watched he's gone but I, he, I'm not famous enough that he's like I'm so excited he wants to come up to me but he's gone Oh, there's that guy. I'll
1: vouch for you. No, there's yeah. that guy. I think yeah. I'm one of
0: those. You wouldn't stop me in the street, but you go, "Oh, that's that guy off that thing."
1: Trouble is, it's hard to compete with Rosie at the moment because her star is rising very meteorically. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And um, and in your in I'm not of- an
0: idiot. That's why you know. That's why i That's the only reason I'm friends with her. I'm hitching my wagon to that
1: horse. <laughs> We're all best friends with Rosie. She's um and when you look at your family, so your parents are obviously really supportive of you. Yes. Doing comedy, and you and I have in common that you have an autistic brother, yes. and I have an autistic son. Yes. And they are quite similar in age. I think. How old? is your
0: 22 yeah
1: my son's 23 yeah mine's actually just got a job as a zookeeper so that's um really? it's, been, it's been all over twitter twitter this weekend oh Matt. my goodness so yeah where? he painting zoo in devon that's so exciting my most liked ever tweet uh, about my son not about me so he um yeah so he's just got that job so what we could have talked about is like what are they going to do with themselves and yeah how, but so yeah so jake's just so jake's passion his whole life has been animals particularly yeah. monkeys and apes So he's been obsessed with primates his whole life and desperate to be a zookeeper. Like when he was three, we were like, what are you going to be? And he was like, I'm going to be a zookeeper. Oh, that's amazing. And try keeping an autistic kid from their dream and you just forget about it. Dog with a bone, isn't it? Dog with a bone. So he has been on a fast track to be a primate specialising zookeeper and has now got a job working in the mammal section at Paynton Zoo Oh my goodness! So, and it's definitely, I think the reason everyone loved the tweet is because I, I put down the fact that he was an animal obsessed autistic kid and I think anyone who understands autism knows that if that passion can translate into the that's job that's the jackpot, that is the, and it's you must such be a, so proud and pleased, oh I've been crying for like 24 hours, oh, I, I'm brilliant. probably very unwitty today because I'm all just a bit raw and oh my goodness my son's doing this amazing thing and, but there's lots of stuff so we've worked, you and I, you very kindly asked me to do your um, National Autistic Society benefit gig that you yep. do every year. So your experience as an older brother—so you're eight years older than your brother—so yes, you remember life before you had um, a little brother. Yeah, and, just about. Yeah. And uh, so, so how is it for you being neurotypical with a neurodiverse you know, sibling? You
0: know, the thing with it is—is is, um I when I, when I was a teenager and he was. Um, Uh, an autistic young boy who just wanted to hang out with his older brother but because there's such a big gap with us it's like my mum was always said it's like having two only children really Um, and you know you don't want to hang out with him and I was really impatient with him and as I've gotten older like we've really connected much better when did he
1: get his diagnosis? how old was he? he was really
0: young he was like three or four okay Um, which is
1: quite yeah, because now my son was diagnosed as a teenager oh wow okay I I mean we sort of guessed he was probably on the spectrum but I in my well I was going to say middle class ignorance Um, i know that lots of people listening will be kind of interested to hear about this and most people listening will have a link to autism directly or indirectly and i sort of went through this thing of thinking jake is on the spectrum but what's the point of me getting a label for that i know he probably is i didn't realize until he got his diagnosis and because he was that bit older they kind of presented it to him almost as an option because he was that bit older and they said look the kind of tests we've done and it took about two years of various yeah, things yeah, yeah. To, get really done. To, to get it's really hard to really hard if you go by the NHS and do this sort of thing and, and they and then they said, Look, you know, we, we would probably class you as being on the autistic spectrum but you can or cannot take this as a sort of label or as a it's up to you kind of thing. And then he said, and I felt so guilty afterwards, he said, you know, I'm so I want to take it on because it's given me a map of my own mind and I understand why I've just not been the same as lots of people of I know and then I felt awful because I thought oh there's me being all sort of oh you know I'm a guardian reader and we'll just love you through it and not <laughs> thinking that he, he might actually want some help, yeah. I mean there is no help forthcoming immediately when you get the diagnosis as you, you'll know as well with your brother but having him diagnosed that young, what what got your how did he get diagnosed? So if he got
0: diagnosed, They were, my mum was pretty sure and they went through the process and I think they might pay Paid to go like to miss the NHS bit which is very fortunate a lot of people can't do mm-hmm. but my mum knew that that if you had a diagnosis there was help available Mm. like at school be it an extra hour reading with Mm. someone who wasn't and and my brother has had you know um, tutors and everything else Mm. my brother has worked very hard to be average like Mm -hmm. to get C's across the board Mm. he has worked his arse off and not
1: because he's not clever but because he just doesn't play the game of school and like
0: he's not necessarily as academic as everyone else Mm -hmm. whereas I put in 5% effort and then 100% at the end Mm. and did quite well because I was always quite academic Uh, but cripplingly lazy Mm -hmm. Um, and and I think it was my mum knew from friends that if you get that label early through primary school and stuff there is help available Mm. and you need every extra little bit you can Mm. but I think um and, you know, my mum ended up becoming the SEN governor for her school and then my brother's secondary school and got and really involved. And that's the special
1: educational needs for yes, people who yeah, yeah, don't... yeah, yeah. So because often that SEN provision is really lacking. I mean, the big thing that I hear from people, even when Jake had been diagnosed, it was just so hard to access the help. And you and I have had conversations where you're literally, where do I go for help? Where do I go for help helping him find employment? Where, yeah. as the parents, what are you supposed to do to know how to help your kids? And so your mum getting in on the inside. Well, that's
0: based, my mum basically decided that she was going to... She'd she was, be the help. She was going to become the person yeah. that decided what happened so she would know how the system works. Yeah. And, and I think a big, a big struggle with, um, you know, my mum had no illusions about him having it, but I think a lot of parents don't want a diagnosis because they, they're mourning the child of their mind in the future. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, if you accept your That's child really, has autism, yeah. they're not going to... Well, I dreamt my child was going to be X, Y or Z and now he can't be or she can't be... So you don't want it because you're in denial about, you know, you you feel like you're killing off your dream child almost. And I think that's really hard for some parents. Whereas my mum was very much like, no, my mum now just wishes she got me diagnosed. She Mm. thinks that she's convinced that I'd have had a diagnosis. I was a very eccentric child, but I'm very social and things like that. But um, with my brother, it was going to be a bit trickier. Like, my brother's quite quiet. He's really kind and gentle and soft, my brother. But, you know, he's... He is quite young for he's 22, but he's a young, very young. 22, Which is again in keeping
1: know? with the diagnosis, Absolutely. right? I think it does take yeah. a bit longer. They say sort of three to five years.
0: Absolutely, like for example, Alex's. You know, this year he's got his first ever girlfriend, and like it's really nice and sweet, and like they're so good together. But um, you know, it's just taking that little bit longer than the other boys, and yeah. I think, and um, and I think he's really proud of his autism, actually. Because to begin with, he was quite uncomfortable with it. Once he got older, we kind of told him he was autistic. And then when he was a teenager, he didn't really want to be different. And all my brother wanted was exactly the same thing that everyone else had Mm. because he wanted to fit in. And then as he's become an adult, sort of from 18, 17, 18 onwards, he's really lent into it as his identity. And he does lots for the National Autistic Society. He's an ambassador. And you're an ambassador as well, We're both ambassadors. But um, he's done lots and he kind of made this video about his autism when he was in college and things. And it's become the thing that he, like feels is the most special about himself mm-hmm. and the thing that defines him as an individual, which is really good because I think he's taken something that would have been a weakness mm-hmm. for some people and he's decided that it's his strength and it's what's the best thing about him in the world. And I think that's really inspirational. I, I, I don't think I would have ever dealt with um, having a diagnosis as well as my brother, it, like, he's very good Even though it.
1: your mum's like, you're having a diagnosis. You should have had one. You're the odd one out. But my
0: brother is, he's a, I mean, like, relentlessly positive. I've never met anyone else that sings in the shower every day. Really? Like, he's so happy. <laughs> and he, you know, he, he doesn't, he doesn't want the world. Like, he just wants to be the best him. And it's really nice. Like, he's great,
1: really. And what would you say to people? I'm about to ask you the three questions I ask everyone yeah. on the podcast. But this is not one of them. But it, um, one of the things that... One of the reasons I like talking about the stuff that Jake's done is because he's an older kid like your your brother is now um, with autism and it's quite nice to look at also the benefits of autism and the yeah, success yeah, yeah, that yeah, can absolutely. come out of it. And there is no question, you know, one of the things Jake said in this job interview, he talked about his autism and he said on the one hand it can make things a little bit more difficult because I won't get the nuances if you give me feedback at work and if you say all oh, the Ocarpies could do with a bit of a better clean I'll be like, right, but if you say, could you please clean out the okapis a bit more rigorously, I'll get that. But he said, but on the plus side, I have got I have got a sort of encyclopedic knowledge of animals and, I, yeah. I, I'm, and there are definite advantages to what he's doing. And I think it's brilliant not to underplay how difficult it is, but also because it is, it's the hardest and best thing I've ever done is bringing up Jake. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's been complicated, but it's been amazing. Um, what would you say what would a bit of kind of advice or wisdom be about that particular thing about having someone in your family who you love dearly with autism the, the thing I
0: find really hard for Alex in that what I would say to people is you know, he really would like to work in television. That's his kind of dream, and like he's done a little bit here and there, a bit of running and things like that.
1: But is this where you asked me to get him a job live on the podcast? No, 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 I not at all. I wasn't yes. even thinking no. like that. But um,
0: <laughs> but the problem is, is like he's and he's applied to all these schemes and things, and even he went to one that was for disability, a Channel Four thing, and he said the problem was is everyone there? He was the only one that was um, not neurotypical. Yeah. So he was still at a disadvantage, even right. though it was a disability thing, because right. in the end it was like people, you know. With various things like maybe maybe they didn't have a, like a, certain a limb, disability. yeah, or something yeah. like that. And he, but but and I think, especially in television, which you know you have to kind of you know get a lot of the work it's done. It's quite but you've got to nuanced. Res- yeah, yeah, it's nuanced, and I think. If, if there's anyone in any industry that could just take a chance to be patient with someone and give them that little bit more time, they'll probably end up with the best employee they've ever had. Yeah. Like, like Jake, you know, like if you give them the chance, he'll know everything and he'll just get it yeah. more than anyone else. But yeah. you just need to have that 10% more patience with them to tell them the right thing. And if you do tell them not exactly what you want, don't be upset with them because it's not their fault. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I think that's, that's what I would say is... Any advice is, if you are in a position where you can give someone with autism a chance, do it because it will benefit you more than anything.
1: Yeah, and I'll put a link to a couple of books in the um, show notes. Neurotribes by Sam yeah. Silberman is a brilliant book at looking at what the benefits are of neurodiversity oh God, and yeah. how neurodiverse will inherit the earth. Namaste, what would you pick as your namaste motherfucking moment?
0: I would pick... The moment like that was the first time I ever sold out the theatre in my hometown. When I mean, so this is Didcot. Didcot, yeah, yeah. Didcot, and um, it's only like a two hundred and fifty seater. It's not like it's this huge big theatre, but um, I'd, I'd sold it out for my uh, first tour, and the gig it couldn't have been better. And like, all my loved ones were in the audience, and it was just that was the moment I thought. Uh, if nothing else ever happens, this is it for me.
1: Were there people from school and people who... Yeah, a
0: few people, all my friends were there, and, and also a lot of them had never seen me, and I'd kind of... So a lot of my friends came along when I was really bad at the beginning they'd all come to gigs and see me play to 12 people and it'd be awful um, whereas there was lots of people it was kind of their first thing and they were all like oh th- like he can this is a real thing that he can do
1: were there any of your nemeses there was there anyone where you're like "Yes, see no, you're you hated me at school I don't look think, think at me they now. were you
0: know um, I, think, I think they would have probably been annoyed at giving me 16 pounds so that's <laughs> why they did it I
1: just thought come. your mum just bought out of the theatre she's like oh, look she, my mum basically
0: does the, p- the press for that show like she just tells everyone it's on Facebook every. But I, you know, and um, whenever I do it, but she, yeah, it's really, um, it's that would be my moment that I was like, if nothing else ever happened, and even now, if nothing else happened, that would be my fondest memory of. Comedy. Do you
1: always do Didcot then on your tour? Will yeah, you I do because it's the only do... date
0: that makes any money. <laughs> <laughs> it's the show that pays for the rest of the tour. You could basically. Just do a week,
1: a residence You know in what? Didco. I think
0: next time I might just do two nights there. Yeah, like
1: Siegfried and Roy there. in Vegas. Yeah, yeah, there t- <laughs>
0: hopefully, there's two hundred people in the country that are willing to travel to Didcot to see me, and then I can do a second night.
1: And what's your favourite joke?
0: My favourite joke? It, it doesn't have to be mine, does it? No, it doesn't. No, so my favourite joke is the Gary Delaney joke. I accidentally filled the escort up with Diesel the other day. She died. That's my favourite joke. <laughs> I think that's a really perfect joke.
1: <laughs> and if you could give one bit of life advice to anybody listening, what one would One bit be? of life
0: advice? Um, I would. The bit of life advice I would give is... Um, don't throw everything into your career because i i find that i really love my job but all of my joy comes out of my friends and my family and things now and that makes me better at my job whereas i think to begin with i was obsessed with doing 300 gigs a year and doing everything i possibly could whereas now i really relish like the bits where i'm not working
1: are you able to say no to things then
0: yeah but like not often Um, I find that
1: so hard still. I think if I say no to things, then I'll be found out. I'll never work again, and I'll wish I'd said yes.
0: Yeah, but you know what? Also, as I've gotten older, I used to want to do things for... I was very ambitious and career driven for a long time in comedy and you know and it is so competitive it's so competitive and it's really hard to put blinkers on and not see what everyone else is doing Yeah, they say you should
1: compete just with yourself yeah and I find
0: I find the mute button on Instagram very helpful for that when people are doing lots of good things I'm like I don't need to see that I'm really happy for them but it doesn't make me feel good about it
1: so do you pick people who are doing really well and then go, unmuting muting you? But if I continue, see they're doing something, yeah. that I
0: think, oh, I really wish I was doing yeah, things do like that. that. Well. I just go, look, I'm yeah. muting them for a bit just because yeah. it's making me sad. That Until I'm... they have a
1: really bad life experience and, and then, then they're welcome. Unmute. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Oh, someone's been cancelled. So let's have a look what's going on in their life.
1: <laughs> My best Ooh, friend again.
0: Someone's on talk radio. Let's see them uh, absolutely <laughs> collapse into right wing nuttiness. Um, but it's a... Uh, but, but as I've gotten I now do things if I think they'll be fun yeah so even with like show like you know I do things where I'm like oh it's not gonna you know it's not gonna go anywhere but will I have a laugh and I've done some really lovely things it's the same with like for years they asked me to do dancing on ice for years and years and I always said no because I was like oh my god everyone will think that's naff it's not a good career move mm-hmm. And then this year they asked me to do it, and they asked me to be the stand-in for like because everyone wanted to do it because no one mm. had worked.
1: Everyone wanted to do everything this year. it yeah, made it very hard.
0: It did, yeah. And they asked me, and I thought mm, like before I'd been going, oh, you know, it was it would be a bad move. No, no comedians ever done it. I they asked me to do the jungle before Joel, loads of times, and I was like, no comedians ever. done it. It's not the right thing for a comedian to Are do. Are you kicking
1: yourself now? A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It absolutely. did kind of work out for him. It sort didn't of made it? him a multi-millionaire. Yeah, so, it sort of. Did. Yeah. <laughs>
0: You know, but but so now with the with the dancing on ice I thought I don't actually care what it does for my career it looks like it's going to be, I think it'll be fun. Mm-hmm. And if I throw myself into it, and I enjoyed every moment of it, and it was one of the best things I've ever done because it was a laugh. Mm-hmm. And that's how I decide things now.
1: So you're able to say no to things and go after the things that you actually if want I to do. If I think something's
0: going to be a miserable experience, like even, you know, there's even things that I think I would have done years ago that everyone talks about being miserable experiences, like certain shows, which I don't think it's fair for me to name because I've not done them. Um, whereas now I would think twice about doing those whereas before I don't care that it's going to be horrible I remember years ago I did Buzzcocks uh, when it was on never mind the Buzzcocks
1: and that it was, always looked like an incredibly tough show to do. It was do. absolutely horrible. Yeah. Like, it was lovely really to hard. watch. Horrible to and, do.
0: But it was one of those things as well that was like one of my bucket list shows to do. Mm. I loved Nevermind Mind the mm. Buzzcocks, and when they asked me to do it, I was like, "Oh my god, this is like a dream come true." And it was a living nightmare. Was like, it? Did it, it, was, it come
1: across badly, or just feel bad? No, no it,
0: they edited it fine, but like it just wasn't a nice place to work mm. at the time. Like, I didn't feel welcomed there. Like um, it was, it was a really unpleasant experience. I didn't feel. Um, I don't know, it just wasn't... I just didn't like it. And and now I think, oh, I'd probably... If knowing what I know now, I would never... I won't do it. I had an agent once who said, um, not doing something is worse. It is better than doing it badly. You can never put that genie back in the bottle, can you? If yeah. you do something and fuck it up. So you might as well just not do it because that is a be- That is the safer option if you really think it's going to be bad or you're not going to enjoy it and that's going to reflect badly. Yeah. And I've done loads of things over the years I haven't enjoyed. Um, but the ones the ones that I've gone oh, I'm not really bothered about my career. Like, I did a show a couple of years ago about... I did a ghost hunting show called Celebrity Haunted Mansion Live and it was this mad... Five days where we went, we put a load of celebrities in a hotel and Christine Lampard and I hosted it and it was batshit crazy, right? And it was on a channel no one had ever heard of and um, I didn't care where it was going to go. But I was like, this sounds like it's going to be absolutely yeah yeah one of the most fun things ever. And it was great. It did yeah. nothing for my career, but I had a great week.
1: And you didn't have to eat bugs in a jungle. I didn't have to eat
0: bugs in a jungle. Although if you are listening and you work on that show, <laughs> I very much <laughs> will eat bugs in a jungle. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that was the wonderful matt richardson every episode i pick a thing inspired by my guest that i am going to do and this week i'm going to read one of the many long ignored books piling up on my office table ditching imposter syndrome by claire Joza. hope i'm saying that right might be Joza. Who knows? The book revolves around a five-step approach for getting rid of imposter syndrome and the blurb on the back says, the practical strategies will help you identify and then fully release imposter syndrome's subconscious drivers in a way that's fast, fun and forever it's funny i've always come at it with more of a sort of embracing imposter syndrome approach on the basis that at least if you suffer from it you're probably not a narcissist or a psychopath or both but hey i'm going to read this book with an open mind and i'll put a link to it in the show notes so that's nearly it for this week but listen up motherfuckers I love you and I love that you're listening to the podcast and I especially love all the messages I get from you every week telling me it makes you laugh and it makes you cry but please also let it make you rate it on iTunes, leave a review and tell everyone and I mean literally everyone you meet how great it is, thanking you kindly. So that's it for the show for this week, thanks again so much to Matt for joining me. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, with music by Jake Yap and produced by Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions. We'll be back in your feed next Monday when I'll be talking to filmmaker, comedian, writer and the original Yes Man, danny wallace
0: like my friend returning a spatula to me a rubber spatula but he brought it on a night out to the pub because that was when he was (laughs) going to see me so now i've got to carry a red rubber spatula around with me all night
1: i'm callie beaton until next time
0: motherfuckers namaste motherfuckers